Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, Bob Hutchins here. And today on the podcast, I am very privileged to have Miss Allison Lewis. She's the founder and the CEO of The Seven Minute Life. She's an author, a speaker, a trainer, and coach. Her books have sold more than 130,000 copies and have been translated into Chinese, Turkish, Korean, and Spanish. Her YouTube channel has more than 1.9 million minutes watched. She's actively researching the neuroscience of happiness, productivity, and well-being in the workplace. And as most of you know, that's right up my alley. For the last 29 years, Allison has spent more than 10,000 hours researching, writing, speaking, teaching, training, and coaching the philosophy, principles, and practices of the seven-minute life. And we're going to talk about what that is here in a few minutes. Allison worked in the financial services industry for 30 years, including 24 years with Morgan Stanley. Her clients include Kellogg's, Morgan Stanley, Northern Trust, IMCA, and the FBI. She's been a guest on CNN, Bloomberg Information TV. Her work has been seen in Investors Business Daily, Advisor Today, Morning Star, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, Women's Day, Family Circle, Success Magazine, Real Simple Magazine, and Fast Company. Allison, welcome to the podcast. Bob, I'm so glad to be here today. Thank you. Thank you. Allison and I connected several years ago when she was actually a client of my marketing and advertising agency. Gosh, Allison, has it been eight, nine, 10 years now? It's been a while. Been a while. Yes, yes. And then we just reconnected recently online through LinkedIn, or maybe it was an article I wrote. I don't remember, but you reached back out and we've reconnected. And so thank you for being on the podcast because you've got a fascinating story. Your journey to where you are today, in my opinion, is one that needs to be heard and, and hopefully it will, it will connect with, with lots of listeners out there. So let's just jump right in, Allison. Who is Allison Lewis? Where was she born and where did she grow up? Well, I am Arkansas born. I was born in a tiny town called Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which is about, um, I don't know, 35 miles south of Little Rock. So it's just south of the central part of Arkansas. And, you know, growing up in a small town, especially in Arkansas, very rural, there's so many opportunities to know what it's like. You know, I know that you're very much into humanity and holistic and the heart, body, mind, and soul. You can only imagine that growing up in a small town, you're surrounded by friends that deeply care about you from the moment you're born. So if you're ever in Arkansas, do not say anyone, anything negative about anyone, because we'll either be married to them. Related to our best friend. So um, growing up in a small town is one of those rare privileges that we have. So I came from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I've lived in Jonesboro, Arkansas for 24 years. And I've recently moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas, a town of 36,000 people, to take care of my 88-year-old mother. Mm. And so I'm in a season in life of um, probably one of the happiest seasons I've ever been in in life. So delighted to share the story of Allison Lewis in the seven minute life. That's great. So did you grow up around or in an entrepreneurial family? Well, I was born an entrepreneur. Um, my family wasn't, you know, they had regular jobs and regular things, but I just came out diving off 
the high high board and you know I just I like doing things that are very um sales driven happy you know in sales people often think well goodness we have to sell something you believe in and you love and so I've always loved helping other people by putting um things in front of them that they really need. So yes, I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. That's great. And did did you have did you have you always been working for yourself? How did you start? We're going to get to the 7-minute life and and all the things that you've done, but leading up to that, did you start in the finance industry right away or what was that progress? Yes, I graduated with degrees in economics and English communications. And at the bright age of 22 years old, and I looked 12, by the way, in 1982, <laughs> I was hired to become the second female financial advisor at a regional firm. And, you know, it's it's really exciting to go into something and to be able to learn. Mm-hmm. And so the stock market, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 1,000, if that ages me a little <laughs> bit, it's now at 30,000. Um, so I really landed in the right place at the right time and had an opportunity to really grow and grow a very big business and do something that I was passionate about, which is helping other people with big decisions. So, yeah, I started from the very beginning and learned and grew and hung around with people that were really smart, that were very good at what they did, had fabulous mentors, worked for great companies. And, you know, that's what I think continually learning is all about. Become the very best you can. Try to master the work that whatever it is that you do, really become a student of that industry. Okay. So you were young, you were a woman. What what was that like during that time period? Like, was that a positive experience? Was it Was it hard? Was it challenging? Was it all of those things? You know, it's, it's interesting. I just had a... Um, an interview with my university. I went to an all, all women's university, William Woods in Fulton, Missouri. And going to a women's liberal arts college, I was surrounded by successful women. Mm. And I really didn't know that women couldn't be leaders and sometimes, you know, not knowing anything differently. So I really walked into a situation not believing that there were going to be barriers. Um, I didn't really experience that. Because I I think sometimes we speak things into what we believe reality when maybe they're not reality. So I went in expecting that I was on equal footing with people and just um, worked hard and and felt very accepted in the in the groups that I you know the the role that I played in the the places that I have worked within those areas. So you got into financial management, financial planning, correct? Correct. Right. And so you were in that industry for for 30 years. And I mean, you saw a lot. You saw the changing economy. You saw recessions. You saw 9-11. Talk a little bit about that. What was the highlight of those years for you? You know, that is such a great question because we all have jobs. Bottom line is we all, almost all of us work. And guess what work is? It's it's work. So, um, you know, being 22 years old and going and I started in the industry in 1982. Hmm. In 1987, a lot of people may not remember, but there was a flash crash 
1987, the stock market fell 22% in one day. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine having 22% of, of your stock wealth wiped out in one day? And, you know, so all of the things that you hear from people, life and your work can be really emotionally difficult. So after that day, I actually made a decision to take a leave of absence for one month and I went skiing in Austria for a month. So I think sometimes you just have to take a break from what you're doing. And I realized I did not want to be a ski instructor in Austria, although I loved it. Um, I would take a train to a different country every day. I'd ski in Switzerland or, um, you know, adventures are good. But I came back and I worked the rest of my career and retired in 2015. So the trajectory of that, the path of that, 1987, the stock market collapsed in one day. Mm. 2001, the tech bubble burst. 2009, the mortgage industry uh, really had a horrible um, piece. And so, you know, we go through these cycles in any kind of business where you have big moves and then you have busts in life. So um, the path of my career was one of really taking steps every day, every day to do the right thing. And if you have people in sales listening to this, you have to continually have proper time management skills, which we'll be talking about, that when you wake up in the morning, regardless of what inter, uh, industry you're in, you really need to ask yourself a couple of powerful questions. Every day I would ask myself, what is my one goal for today? Mm. And if I could come in with an intention of accomplishing something important and letting the rest of it kind of fade away, I believe that that intention of doing the right thing and focusing on goals on a daily basis made my Work remarkable. I ended up in the top 11% in sales nationwide as a female advisor. And even now, I think less than 18% of financial advisors are women, women even today. Mm. And so in a male-dominated area, I was able to really build a very large and powerful business by focusing on the most important things every day. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into that piece of your journey, the seven minute life. But before we do, I know you and I connected on several different things. I know one of the things that you in your bio that I read earlier was that you've been researching the the neuroscience of happiness, productivity and well-being, mental health in the workplace, the intersection of psychology, technology and spirituality. Those are all things that I talk a lot about on this podcast. And that's something that you and I have talked about. Tell me about your own journey, if you don't mind. While uh, while bios and work histories can serve as the highlights and successes in our lives, a lot of times we don't get to see an accurate picture of what it takes for a person to actually to be able to write that bio and create those highlights and talk about the those highlights. Because underneath that, it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of struggle. It's a lot of failure sometimes that, that leads to the successes. And for many of us, it can be struggles in our relationships. It can be struggles with our mental health. It can be struggles with uh, our health, with our family, whatever it may be. 
So talk to me a little bit about that. What was your journey alongside all your successes and uh, all the great things and the appearances that you've been in major business magazines and news networks and sold all your books? Talk to me a little bit about the other side of that journey, if you would. Well, that's why we're really here. I do want to encourage people um, that all of the things that we need to do, we need to do. But let me really bring on the authentic hat. You've recently given a TED Talk. And in that TED Talk, you came up with verbiage. And I'm going to ask you to just share that verbiage um, with with your audience again, that I think is life altering. You have two phrases and I'm going to ask those phrases to come from your mouth and then I'm going to translate them into my own life journey. Yeah. Those two phrases are ambiguous loss and tragic optimism. So let's talk with, well, first, can you define, um, ambiguous the loss? First yeah. Ambiguous loss. Yeah, it was a it was a phrase that was coined uh, by a psychologist. Her name was is she's still alive, Pauline Boss, back in the seventies. And it's in her study of marriage and family therapy, specific when it comes to grief and loss. Ambiguous loss is being connected to a person, place, or thing that you can't seem to get rid of that connection, but you also can't seem to grasp it. It eludes you. And the example of ambiguous, the easiest example of an ambiguous loss would be maybe an elderly parent who is suffering from Alzheimer's. Um, They're still there. You can still talk to them. You can still hug them. Um, But you also are mourning the loss of who they once were to you. Same thing if you have somebody who is, you're living with someone who has a drug addiction. But it could also be Someone, you know, an extreme case of someone who's lost uh, at war and their body was never recovered or a miscarriage. Those are all things that you're connected to either literally, physically or psychologically that there's no closure to. It's ongoing. So that's ambiguous loss. And in the context of my TED Talk, I I referred to it as something that we all share in connection with going through a pandemic. We're all mourning the way things used to be and whatever that may be for, for each and every one of us, we're all collectively going through that in some way. And then tragic optimism really was talked about in, in, in probably, I don't know if he came up with it, but Viktor Frankl, he's the, the man who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He talked about it in the context of his observation as a psychiatrist who went through a concentration camp during World War II, observing and actually taking notes and studying people, amazingly so, that survived and didn't survive the horrors of a Nazi concentration camp. And what he said was there's this thing called tragic optimism that in the midst of the darkest, hardest, most horrific uh, situations, we can choose to find purpose even that in that. And his examples were people who survived, the difference between people who survived and who didn't seem to have this deep, deep sense of purpose, even in where there was, uh, appears to be no purpose at all. It's almost like those situations trigger uh, us to go deep and to change ourselves and our attitudes. So 
That's what I talked about. So let's go backwards. Okay. You know, when I, when you read that bio and I talk about sales and doing all those wonderful things at Morgan Stanley, those are highlights. But life is a day-by-day journey. And so let's go back to Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Um, I was raised in the family as an adult child of an alcoholic. Mm. Uh, I am now. My father um, drank two quarts of vodka, not pints. Mm. And his stomach blew out, literally. I mean, he his stomach blew out and we didn't know that he would survive. That did not stop him. Um, <laughs> from drinking. Apparently, uh, drug addiction and alcoholism is one of those things that you have to come to your own conclusions. And so at the age of 12, my father joined AA and really overcame his, well, didn't overcome it, but began to deal on a daily basis through AA uh, with his own addictions. And he died at 92 mm-hmm. um, about two years ago, and he celebrated his 48th year of sobriety by having his 48-year chip put in his hand by my brother without being conscious. He was really just on death's door. Mm. And to be able to grow up in that circumstance where you do see a lot of difficulty. Um, My father uh, was also on drugs at the time. You know, people didn't talk about that back then. Back then, Alcoholics Anonymous was truly anonymous. <laughs> and through, through his 48 years, he has helped hundreds of people go through that journey of addiction. And so depression came along with that. So I came by it honestly. So let's just cut to the chase. From the time I was probably in my 20s, mm-hmm. I also, you know, a lot of us put up these facades of we really want to do good things, but I began to struggle personally with stress and anxiety. I'm never good enough. I'm not smart enough. How in the world can these things, you know, you're doing all these good things, but there's still that voice in the back of your head saying it's never enough. And so I kind of plotted along with that. And here's what really happened is that in a family that's dysfunctional, that has mental health background, Mental health is a real, is the real deal. Um, so my father was the recovering alcoholic. My mother's father, and if you're dealing with suicide, I hope that people will reach out um, to seek treatment. But my father, my mother's father uh, shot himself when I was six years old. Mm. My mother's grandmother shot herself before that. And then. At the age of 42, my first cousin shot herself. Mm. So this suicide and mental health, you know, when you talk about authenticity, they struggled with that. And I think, so I come by it honestly, that I was one of these people that was kind of a hidden mental health phenomena. And I'm sure you see that in the workplace. So when you talk about ambiguous loss, what a powerful term. Yeah. Because depression is almost like a a drip in a water faucet. It never quite goes away, but over time it becomes so painful that what happened to me in my career at the end 
of 30 years is that I truly felt like I was, had a funnel turned upside down over me that was covered on the inside with black tar. Mm. And I couldn't even see out of the top of it. I knew there was light above me, but truly I was frozen. And so when people come to the seven minute life and they see the words, are you stuck, frozen and exhausted? Do you find yourself drifting through life? That's where the story of the seven minute life really begins is that I know there are people out there that have been in that same place and it doesn't feel very ambiguous to them. It feels very right in that moment. Like some people here cannot breathe. Um, I want to share the fact that that is, that is humanity and you're not alone. And so I want to finish that story um, in a moment, but I'd, I'd like to talk about why your podcast looks at people because I'll get to the, I'm going to let you know that there's, with mental health therapy, with ongoing treatment, I'm a lot better. In fact, I'm on a great place, but so I don't want to leave people hanging. But, but Bob, why is all of the mental health story and the tragedy that we face, why is that a mission and a purpose for you before I finish my story? Yeah. I think it, it has been part of my story that I've talked about on this podcast and with others quite a bit for the last few years. I believe that we live in this world, Allison, that is obsessed with comparing ourselves with other people. A hundred years ago, you were judged by your character and your actions as a human being. Today, we're judged by words that are read, by images we see and by short video clips. In other words, we're judged by the media that we have on us or we put out or that people can find on us. And so we have been trained to always put our best foot forward and to make sure that that media is positive. And so that creates a dissonance in our lives that has become very obvious and um, quite disturbing on many levels, and it's only getting worse. So if I can be a small part of using this media to show, to, to show a more accurate picture, and but also encourage people, the problem is that we don't need to stop comparing ourselves. We need to compare ourselves more. And when I say more, we need to compare ourselves accurately. And that accuracy is Okay, Allison is very successful and you can model your life after her, but you shouldn't feel like you're not very good and you're a loser because she's so successful. What you need to do is look at the complete picture and say, she didn't start off with a perfect home life. She didn't start off with the perfect father. She didn't start off in a great wealthy home that gave her everything she needed to be successful, she struggled and she dealt with it and she worked hard and she had her own struggles. And so for me, I want to tell those stories because I think they're life-giving. I think they're transformative. And at the end of the day, vulnerability breeds vulnerability and that's human connection. And that's 
gets us full circle to what I originally said is human connection and relationship is what we're all longing for because we're tired of not having that and only basing any human interaction on media, on words, on our best foot forward. So that's really my motivation. You know, you've said a, a lot there. Um, one of my purpose words is belonging. Mm. And I think that belonging is a word that a lot of people are not really even sure what that means. But to me, belonging means as you are, right where you are, um, without having to try, um, just being able to take a breath, to be human, and to feel like people care. You know, when I when I share my purpose and priorities in life, the words that bubble up for me are compassion, kindness, freedom, mm. happiness, but there's a different kind of happiness, you know, that we were talking about recently that I want to share with your audience. But that whole feeling of I can stand in my own shoes and take a breath and realize that that's okay, right where we are right now, and be grateful for that. I don't have to, you know, I, I often when I'm coaching people, I'll, I'll, I'll ask them, who are you today and who do you want to be? And I have to stop myself and say, that's not a great question. You know, the great question is, in this moment, what's one thing you can be grateful for? In this moment, um, you know, so I, I think life, sometimes we have to think of it in the terms of life just is. It doesn't have to be, it just is. And so we don't have to label everything as good or bad. We don't have to label everything as happy or sad. We can at some point just, and I love the word, just stand in our own shoes and just mm. be. Mm. Couldn't agree more. So Allison, tell me what has motivated you in your own life and in your own journey of, of studying the neuroscience of happiness, productivity, and well-being beyond your own journey, your upbringing. Is there anything else in your life that has pushed you to go from financial service industry for 30 plus years, really being able to be successful at, at that and ultimately retiring seven years ago to shifting to researching the neuroscience of, of happiness and well-being? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from several places, but I don't know if you remember in 1987, I said I took a leave of absence and mm. went and lived in Austria, um, trying to decide if I wanted to be an English speaking ski instructor. <laughs> and what I guess I was really hoping is that the really good looking German speaking ski instructor would, no, I'm kidding. But I actually fell, had a profound head injury, a traumatic brain injury, and began to have seizures from that. Mm. And so I began to study really years ago, almost 20 years ago now, the impact of um, when I lost the ability to, to bring forward words, um, mm. you know, I would hold up uh, a fork and I would say biscuit, mm. even though I knew that I was trying. So there were some things in life that really forced me into the neuroscience of brain injury. Can the brain recover? And I began to 
put that in the same circumstances of mental health, you know, what are those things that happen in the neuroscience? So I've, I, now I, I'm a nerd from the word go. I'm really good at math. And I will tell you, Bob, being good at math in the eighth grade is not a great social skill, <laughs> but it pays off. It pays off when you're 60. But I did the same thing with science. I didn't even understand the words that I was reading. But what I did understand is that what you feed grows and what you starve dies. And, and you're talking about exactly the same things. From a neuroscience standpoint, our brains change the physical structure based on what we see what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, what we think, what we dream, all of those things physically change the structure of our brain. And so if that were true, and, and I want to talk about this, if that were true, if all of these inputs that I just put in front of myself became the brain structure and the life that I experienced, then I wanted to become very aware of what I put in front of myself and what I absorbed on a daily basis. I want, I want people to hear that. What you think about changes your brain. What you think about becomes the life you experience. What you hear becomes your reality. What you see becomes your reality. What you dream and imagine becomes the reality that you experience in life. And so what are we putting in front of ourselves that becomes our own reality? Mm. And so you began to go down that road and tell me about the, the seed and the germination of the seven minute life. When did that happen? Happened really in the nineties. Um, so a long time before all of this, and it started as a business a germination. I have Attention deficit disorder, um, fully diagnosed, was medicated when I was younger. If you know me, I come across as a Pollyanna. So imagine a Pollyanna with ADD and then multiply that by about 10. I'm entertaining. Um, I'm also a children's magician. So if this whole seven-minute life thing doesn't work out, I'm available for kids' birthday parties. <laughs> but I'm really fun to, to be around. Now, all of that to be said, when you are scattered, I created a single sheet of paper that would help me create a daily plan of action. And so by focusing on what is my goal for today, we have this secret sauce that's called the five before 11. Mm. What would happen to your listeners if every morning they woke up with the sheet of paper and would take seven minutes to step out of the noise, to ask themselves, what is my goal for today? Now we're talking about the seven-minute life and time management. I'm going to come back to how that fits back into the neuroscience. But what would happen if a person could step out of the noise, take seven minutes to determine how they were going to spend their time today? And so what that looks like is, and I want people to really hear this, the to-do list that you create every morning Every action you take, everything you let on your to-do list is knocking out something else. So every action you let into your life that you spend time on 
it's a it's a yes or no. There is a limited finite time. So if you focus on one thing, you are choosing not to focus on something else. So every action on your life to-do list today is creating the reality of your experience today. The to-do list, the actions you take become the life you lead. That's why all of this is so important. So I created it as a basically let me organize my life. But as I began to study the science of all this, I realized the importance of making wise choices. I mean, time is our most valuable asset. You know, time is life. Time is finite. The choices we make right now of how to spend our time becomes the reality of life that we experience. And at the age of 85, looking backwards, I want to be able to set up, make good choices. Hmm. And so, so the germination of that started in the nineties and you were, I know you've been working on it and uh, tell us, tell the listeners what the seven minute life is. So the seven minute life was founded as a time management company in order to help businesses grow their revenues. Time management is one of those things that is a skill that is needed. But, oh, by the way, people hate the word time management. They even hate planning. More planning sounds like you're going to plan your taxes. I mean, it's like, I don't want time management. Right. So it started started as a time management company. And here's the real beauty of it. The the secret sauce is that there are 24 hours in the day that breaks down into 1,440 minutes that we all have. So why seven minutes? What would happen if people would take 1% of those 1,440 minutes, 14 minutes, seven minutes in the morning and seven minutes in the evening to make those choices of what becomes a reality? So what the seven-minute life has become is taking seven minutes to experience life. And how do you do that? There are three things takeaways I really want your listeners to hear today is that when you take those seven minutes, there are things you have to learn how to do. Mm. Our generation and the generations below us really need to learn how to think again. Mm. Mm. We are so bombarded by social media, by television, by interruption. We almost crave that next novel thing. What is it going to be like to learn how to think again? And it's not as simple as it sounds. So we're teaching people how to think. We're teaching them how to clarify. That is one of my favorite words. If I can look someone in the eye and say, let me help you clarify. What's Mm. your North Star? Can you see it? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? What can you look forward to? And then you do have to plan and prioritize and choose. So the seven-minute life, now is about creating an intentional life by developing skill sets. So that's one thing is it only takes seven minutes to think. In the evening, the second takeaway is we can't continue to do the same things over and over. And when we teach it, we call it the cow path. We go down the same paths over and over and over again because they're familiar. And I I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be willing to be as crazy, as innovative, as creative, as curious as I can. So the second takeaway is in the evening, we need to look backwards and take seven minutes and learn Mm. every day. Did I do right? 
What maybe could I have changed? What was I grateful for? Who could I have known today that could make life better? Who do I need to reach out to and be kind? Who can I do one thing for? And then the final thing that I want to kind of close out on all this is that I believe we've lost vocabulary. And what I mean by that is Austin Trotman, who is, I talk about him a lot, said, my thoughts disentangle themselves when they pass through my lips and my fingertips. Mm. Let me say that one more time. My thoughts disentangle themselves when they pass through my lips and my fingertips. So I believe talking about things that are important makes them concrete. When we talk about things from a neuroscience standpoint, they come into that conscious awareness and what we feed grows and what we starve dies. And so what I want at the seven minute life is to give people a bigger vocabulary of what it means to thrive. Of what does leadership look like? What does kindness look like? How do you define gratitude? Mm. What is it like to wake up and expect to find strength and optimism in the depths of, of loss? Mm. You know, and so many people think of trauma as being something magnificently horrible. Trauma happens to us every day. And it's those little traumas that can overtake us. And so as we feed trauma in our life, trauma grows. So I want to truly give people a vocabulary that really doesn't exist in this day and age, not of comparison, not of doing one more thing, not of making one more dollar, but of truly um, doing things that are purposeful. And purpose does not have to be grand. Priorities do not have to be grand. They can be tiny little things, but I want people to talk about them. I want them to write them down. I want those things to become the reality of the life they experience. So those are the three things that I want the seven minute life to be for people. We need to slow down seven minutes in the morning. What is my goal for today? What's the reality I want to choose? What's most important? Put those things on your to-do list. In the evening, to reflect, to learn every day, to grow, to develop, to make sure you're living the life of innovation and creativity and curiosity. If not, let's pivot. And that third thing is that creating a vocabulary where you can speak your own truth, kind of hate that word, but where you can speak to yourself and think about and write down the things that truly matter, they become your reality. That's great. And and people can learn more about the whole program because I know you've written a book called The Seven Minute Life. And then you have, I guess, a planner and other several materials, correct? Yes. And, uh, you know, but what we say, Bob, is that you can read a book, but it doesn't change your life. Um, so I'm very grateful that people have bought a lot of copies of my book. But what really changes people's lives is surrounding themselves with people. And being coached, being mentored, being in community with them and making it a lifelong habit. And so books are absolutely fabulous. Um, you know, I spent 20 years studying time management and you can read my book in four hours. That's a pretty good return on an investment. I spend 20 years, you spend four hours learning, you know, from that. So reading is a great opportunity. But uh, Bob, you and I have talked about 
the power of sitting one-on-one with someone yeah. and being mentored and being coached and being part of a community. So I think where the seven-minute life is really moving is toward building a community of people that truly want to learn and grow and change behaviors over time. Yes. And if people wanted to learn about this, Allison, is uh, seven minute life.com. Is that, is that correct? It's the, the seven, seven with the number seven. Um, but the easiest way to probably find it is just to type in seven minute life. How can I find my purpose or mm. seven minute life, Allison Lewis, you know, um, but if people truly want to change, they need to learn how to do that. And I'm so proud and excited of, of what's happening. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, that's awesome. But there has to come that second step. Where does mastery come in? And so unabashedly, I think people need to come to the seven minute life and find out how do I develop those habits? How can I really make lasting change in my life? And so um, gratefully, we can do that for people um, for very inexpensive amounts of money, such as $14 and less. So people can get started. Um, you know, I'm here to help people and people can get started and then move on from there. But we, you know, this is my passion. Now, I want to, I do want to um, just finish with this authenticity piece as Pollyanna-ish as I may sound, and I truly am in one of the happiest seasons of my life because I belong right where I am in this moment, warts and all. I have friends that love me. I have family that loves me. Uh, That doesn't mean life is easy. Mm. And I just don't want people to go out and think, oh, if I create a vocabulary, if I take seven minutes, that life becomes easy. That is not what humanity is about. Mm. Humanity is about being content where we are in this moment and truly being grateful and purpose in my mind is always outward focused. So those people that are truly struggling with mental health or struggling with tragedy or trauma or past trauma, seek help. You know, don't, don't think that you're alone in any of that. So I want to make sure that people realize The work we're doing is very important. The work you're doing is very important. But there are a lot of resources out there for people wherever they are to, whether it's medically or mental health or stress or physical health, exercise, please make sure that you're surrounding yourself with the proper resources because for life to be better, we have to work at it. Yes. And um, so, Bob, as, as you wrap up all of this, what would you encourage your listeners to do as far as your vision and mission? How, how are you helping them? Well, I'm bringing on guests on every episode like yourself that not only can verbalize their own journey, but also there's one thing that they all have in common that I try to do in my writings. I try to make sure that my guests, <clears throat> excuse me, also are able to do And that's provide hope. I know that I have been in a place in my life that was a very dark time. And when you lose hope, you have lost almost everything. That is where suicidal ideation comes in. It's where irrational thinking comes in. And so 
For me, I want to always tell people that there is always hope, no matter where you are and what you've done or what you're dealing with or what you've experienced. There's always hope. There's always some, like you said, there's someone, there's something, there's some place, there's a resource that can help you in some way. You've never gone too far. And so for me, that is my motivation because I know what it feels like to feel like, because that's what it is. You feel and you believe that there's no, no hope. And so talking to people like you, I am encouraged. You have given people hope in, in your writings and the work that I do and the writings and the, in the podcast and the books, uh, they're always, the theme is understand, have self-awareness and know that there's hope out there. Even in my podcast, when I talk about, you know, the ambiguous loss in my own journey, it went from there to tragic optimism, because I do think that the worst of times, the most difficult of times can be, and they provide opportunities to radically shift ourselves, to grow, to change, to come up with something new, to be resurrected is in sometimes words that people use when you feel like you have died. And, and I think for me, that is part of my life's work is to be restorative in that manner and to provide hope. So hopefully that is felt and seen and that thread is perceived in all forms of media that I put out there. Well, this has been a pleasure. Um, what a great thing to have a, a clear vision and a hope. And um, as I leave people, I would encourage them to at least take a moment to laugh out loud today. I don't know what that means for people, but hanging out with you, Bob, makes me laugh. I'm so grateful. It is beautiful here today. Same here. So to be grateful for. And, you know, it's just been a blessing to be on your podcast today. And well, thank you. Thank you for being on it. And thank you for sharing your story. And again, people can go and they can Google or look up Seven Minute Life. And with the number seven and with your name, Allison Lewis, they're bound to find you. You've got a lot of things out there. And, you know, if they want to take that journey of seven minute life, it's not just a book. It's not just a planner. You have built a very robust training and masterclass and boot camp and all kinds of things. So depending on how far they want to take this, um, you offer some amazing resources. So I would encourage everyone to, to go and, and check all of that out. So Allison, thanks again for being on the, on this, on the podcast. My pleasure. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye.